Well, good morning, everyone here. It's been a while since I've seen your faces, and it's been a while since you've probably seen mine if you've just been coming to Lakeside. So, yes, uh, welcome also to those who are online, if they can actually see us. I don't know whether it's working. Yeah, for the last while, um, I haven't been here because I've been part of the online community. And just recently, this is only our second time back in person, and um, we are pleased to be able to see most of your faces again. So, yeah, uh, as uh, uh, Graham was saying, we've been in Lakeside uh, about 30-some years, and um, it's been neat during that time. We're also in a, in a pro process of making a transition from living part-time up here to living part-time up here and part-time with our, um, our family in Angus. And Angus, for those who are interested, is located just outside of Barrie. Yeah, so on some of new faces around here. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, I work at Mediba. Actually, I celebrated my 42nd anniversary of working at Mediba as of May 1st, so that's a long time. <laughs> Anyways, it wasn't much of a celebration. I think we just did some regular work that day. So, yeah, Mediba, for most of you who know it, is a Christian camp just down the road in West Guilford. And we appreciate being a long-term mission partner with Lakeside. So thank you very much for your partnership. And a lot of people have been there. But if you've never been there, and it's been a long time that you've been there, we would invite you to come and uh, come for a tour. We'd love to show you around and tell you a little bit about the vision of what God's doing uh, at Medeva. So pretty exciting. So as we begin today, I'd like to ask you a question. Uh, how would you rate your listening skills? So, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, what number would you give yourself? So let's say a 10 is like this. When someone speaks, you stop, you pause what you're doing, you look at them in the eyes, you concentrate on what, the, what they're saying, you, and you reflect back to them what you hear. If you're that kind of person and you always do that, give yourself a 10. But if you're on the, end of the other end of the scale, you might be completely the opposite. Someone's speaking to you, you're doing your own thing, you're thinking about something else, you're not looking at them in the eyes, and then when they do require your attention, you might grunt uh, a, a couple times, and then you'd quite truthfully rather be speaking about something else, and, and that would be like a one. So somewhere in between, most of us, I would think, would fall on that scale. And I know that it varies by situation and by the people you're with. Sometimes I rate myself as a pretty good listener, and other times not so much. Um, I think the person who would know best would be my wife, Glenda, and because she's able to, to uh, see me uh, all the time in every circumstance. But, uh, you know, when it comes to my relationship with Glenda, um, I have to be careful how I listen because sometimes she's actually not talking to me when she's speaking out loud. I, I don't know if any of you have that situation, and um, I've been in trouble sometimes when I've answered the question and she's not really talking to me. Anyways, uh, other times... When I'm reading a book, maybe you've caught yourself in this. You ever got to the end of a page, or a chapter even, and said, I, I have no idea what I just read. I mean, I was reading the words, I was, I was uh, hearing them in my mind, but I was not absorbing them. Or perhaps when it comes to directions, you've had a similar experience to me. Once I was driving back from Bancroft through Halliburton, which any of us have done that route, know it quite well, that uh, you go on Highway 28, and then when you get to Highway 118, you make a turn towards Cardiff. Well, this one time, I just sailed right on by for 10 more minutes until I realized I don't recognize where I am. Isn't it amazing, actually, how we can be present 
and actually not be present? I find that amazing. I think there are four reasons that I've been thinking about as to why we uh, don't listen well. One reason is that sometimes we don't hear the actual words. I was thinking about how often I've heard uh, 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 be misquoted. And it it simply says, uh, they quote it and say, money's the root of all evil. But that's not true. Because they're missing a few words before. Because it says, the love of money is the root of all evil. That's a really huge difference. Sometimes we don't hear all the, word, the right words. Sometimes we hear the words, but we don't really understand the meaning. Um, a friend of mine who's probably joining online, Olaf, we've been on, online and in the Zoom lobby for uh, quite a few months, and we're even continuing. We're going to meet him this afternoon. Anyways, Olaf put me on uh, the Merriam-Webster's Word of the Day, because I'm sort of fascinated by words. And they send you an email with a word, and sometimes the word, I know what it means. Sometimes I've never even heard of the word. But other times, there are, you know, I sort of have the word in my mind, and I take a guess at it, and I'm not quite right. For instance, uh, how many of you know what the word chagrin means? I thought it simply meant embarrassment, but chagrin actually means, according to the definition, uh, distress caused by humiliation, disappointment, or failure. It's a little more than embarrassment. I still didn't quite have the meaning. And then sometimes when it comes to communication, we're distracted. I didn't bring my cell phone in because it's too heavy, but how many times has that thing that we hold in our pockets or in our purses distracted us? Isn't it amazing how families and friends get together, and it doesn't take long until everyone's actually looking at their smartphone and no one's talking to each other? It's so, so simple. And sometimes communication is challenged because the person who's speaking isn't very clear in what they're saying. And that is a huge issue sometimes. My sister was a missionary in Japan for 37 years. And she used to say that the number one problem on the mission field, as she saw it, was communication. Interesting, as I reflected upon it, I think it's probably almost the number one problem everywhere. It, 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 it infiltrates pretty much everything we do. I see Steve smiles over there because Steve teaches communication primarily in, at Mediba when we, when we teach it. So he has all sorts of things that go through his mind. Yes, yeah, so it's uh, really interesting. So regardless of what number you gave yourself, my guess is that you would admit that you have some ability to improve in that area. I know that I do. Um, but when listening skills are important when we have our relationships with each other, But far more important than the relationships with each other is being able to develop the skill of listening to God. So we're going to look at a passage today that specifically talks about the way God speaks to us and then how we should respond. So it's my hope that we're going to be able to uh, understand that and we're going to have the text on the screen. But if you'd like to follow with your Bibles, I always think that's a great idea because we can engage better that way. So let me tell you, though, I've been studying the Psalms in depth a lot in the last two years. And there's three reasons why I like the Psalms. I'm just going to explain them to you now. Number one is that they reveal the heart of God. I love seeing who God is from what the Psalms show. show. Number two is they speak to our hearts, to our very souls. Uh, It speaks to the emotional part of who we are. And number three, they give us hope in a messed up world. Do we not live in one messed up world right now? And the Psalms are a great source of hope as we approach them. So there's things to keep in mind when we approach the Psalms. And I'm just going to say there's lots of things to keep in mind. But I'm going to list uh, uh, several things to keep in mind. 
Number one, it's wisdom literature. It falls into the genre of wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is a simple way to say it is that it shows us how to live, how to be wise. And that is the emphasis upon most of the wisdom literature. And then also it is Hebrew poetry. I have a confession to make about poetry. When I was in high school, I did not get poetry. I just could not understand why people could just not say things in normal words and speak really clearly. It wasn't until later till I began to appreciate the power and the effectiveness of poetry. Because it's emotional. It touches the core of who we are, as I was explaining before. We're able to, it, it's able to use images and Um, and similes and metaphors and other things to be able to express uh, emotion. It also causes this to slow down. I never thought of this till recently. Poetry actually is not meant to be understood when you first read it. Sometimes you can, but lots of times it takes multiple readings of something over and over again to really understand it, to ponder on it, to think about it. In particular, Hebrew poetry uses a tool Uh, or an approach called parallelism. And parallelism has this idea, and in our psalm today we have quite a bit of parallelism, that's why I'm explaining this. Uh, Parallelism, the, the author says something in one line, and then the next line after it, it says something else about that same topic. And sometimes it says the same thing in different words. It's, it's synonymous. Sometimes it says the same thing, and, sorry, it says the opposite things. So it contrasts what's being said. And sometimes it just adds more information. So sure to keep that in mind when you're reading the Psalms or any Hebrew poetry uh, in the Bible. Thirdly, is that it's primarily meant to be sung. We don't think of the Psalms that way because we've lost the music. It's been lost to history. But if you look through the Psalms you, and pay attention, you will notice there are many references to musical instruments, to musical terms, and because that was the songbook of the Hebrew people, of the Jewish people. And it turned it to be the songbook of the early church and really has carried on in some traditions even to be the songbook today that's used. So now let's look at the text itself. Psalm 19. So notice right, right from the beginning it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David. So the director of music, you can see that, that, uh, that, that uh, David is the author, and he's actually giving instructions to someone to put it together for the choir to be able to sing, probably at a special occasion. So David was the author, King David, the most famous king. And the outline of some psalms is actually very difficult to determine. You have to sort of read it. This one, we have the blessing, is this super easy. So here's the outline of the psalm, this psalm, as I have laid it out. Number one is that God declares himself through creation. We're going to see that in the first six verses. Then the next four verses, we're going to see that God declares himself through scripture. And then the last four verses are we have uh, David's response or his declaration in light of God declaring himself. So let's look at the first point. God declares himself through creation. Let's read verses 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes to the ends of the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Have you ever taken time to look at the stars at night? I mean... 
lying maybe in an open field on a moonless night with no clouds, and just look at the stars. I'm sure you're like me, and you've had that many times, where you sort of glance up and you look at it. But there was one particular occasion when I was on one of my annual uh, solo canoe trips, and I'd been in my tent all evening to avoid the bugs, <laughs> and then I got out after the bugs had gone to bed, and as I went out of, my, out of my tent and stepped onto the rock that was in front of it, I was overwhelmed by what I saw. I, there was no moon, the stars were so bright, there was no pollution from lights around me where I was, and I was overwhelmed. I just sat with my mouth open, looking up into the sky and thinking about the implications. Wow. And as I thought about that, I recalled this verse, the heavens declare the glory of God. And I I realized that the the stars were actually shouting at me. They're shouting, hey, Bruce, I exist. I exist. I'm out here. And I point to God. He's the one that created me. So it's really neat to think about that. So this section uses a characteristic of personification, of taking a human characteristic and applying it to something that's not human. And we see the verbs in verses 1 and 2 saying, they declare, proclaim, pour forth, speak, and reveal. See, there's no actual voice that comes out, but we know, nevertheless, that the message is clear. God created the skies. Well, I enjoy looking into the stars, but I am no stretch of the imagination an astronomer. But I actually know someone who is an amateur, quite accomplished amateur uh, astronomer. He just retired, lives in Frontenac, and in his own backyard, he built an actual observatory. So that you could tell that this is a little different than the person that's casual. He built his own observatory, and he has six different telescopes, including a 16-inch telescope, which is pretty big for an amateur. Uh, anyways, the picture that we're seeing or I'm not seeing, there we go, that we're seeing on the screen is a picture that he took. And he took, I, I thought of many pictures I could show you because I wanted us to somehow engage with looking at the sky. So this picture is of the Andromeda Galaxy. Now, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with it. It's, it can be seen with the naked eye. You can see it right under the constellation Cassiopeia, which is the Greek mythical queen. And it's uh, right between it and Pegasus. But you can see it. Not very big when you're looking at it with your naked eye, but take a telescope and you can see it's amazing. So what we're looking at there is two and one-half million light years away. That is our closest neighbor to our galaxy, the Milky Way. Unbelievable. Some of these numbers I'm still thinking through, and the implication is incredible. We're going to see a a little film for a, a, a minute and a half at the end of when I speak. And it's going to, if you want to see it on your own, Google, Google pixels of Andromeda. And it's unbelievable because what happens is the Hubble Space, Space uh, uh, Station, which was uh, a telescope that was sent up in, in uh, I guess, 1990. In 2015, it focused on this particular uh, galaxy. And it took 4,000 high-definition photos of the upper right corner. So just a little portion of this. And when you look at that, and you'll see at the end, and, it, and you look closely at that, the closer you get, the more stars you see. It's just like at night, right? We look up, we see lots of stars. When it's darker, I see more stars. When I take a telescope, I see more stars. And the closer you get out there, you see more stars. It's unbelievable. So I said to Gary, I said, Gary, do you ever get tired of just looking? I mean, you put it in your backyard. I mean, you have to be really into it. He says, Bruce, I never, I am continually overwhelmed every time I look at the skies. 
He sees more things. He sees new things. And, uh, and uh, it's amazing. Then he gave me some numbers that overwhelmed me even more. And I, I think it's important to reflect on some of these numbers. So the average galaxy in our universe apparently has about 100 billion stars. 100 billion. Then they say that in the known universe which they're, descri- they're discovering more all the time, there are approximately 100 billion galaxies. So, I'm no mathematician, but I did some little bit of uh, I had to do some Googling, because the numbers are too big for me. So, what it is, is that 100 billion times 100 billion in our known universe equals 10 sextrillion. So, just to give you an idea of what it is, so you start with like a million, then you go to a billion, Trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, and a sextillion comes at that particular point. The number is one with 22 zeros. That's how many stars they estimate are in the universe right now. Do we worship amazing God? Is he more than we could even begin to imagine? Wow, he speaks to us. And yet for most of us, when we go out on a starry night, We barely give the sky a glance, even though it's speaking to us. Because there are so many distractions that keep us from being able to engage with listening to God speak. And then there are other uh, phenomena in the sky. Uh, How many have ever seen the northern lights? If you've never seen the northern lights, you need to try to get in a place. Um, Barry Hart and I have this little deal that doesn't matter what time of day. He's supposed to call me whenever we see the northern lights because we don't see them in Halliburton very often. How many have seen it in Halliburton? I've seen it like three or four times in Halliburton. Yeah, not very often, not for a long time. But I was once on another canoe trip up in the Abitibi River near James Bay, and I sat on one campsite one night, and the sky was dancing, dancing with colors and so vivid through the entire sky. It was so incredible. I will never forget it. How many of you have seen a double rainbow? One particular occasion, I was driving through by Pine Lake, and there was this incredibly vivid double rainbow. Matter of fact, I had to pull the car off to the side and stop, and I just looked at it. And another time, I was driving in Halliburton in the winter, and I saw a sun dog. Anyone know what a sun dog is? But, yeah, less people. You need to Google sun dog to see it. It is a, is a sort of a, 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 a rainbow in the winter, put it that way. Uh, and I, again, pulled my car off, and I said, wow, it is incredible. Yeah, and then there are hundreds, maybe thousands of sunsets that we've seen. I particularly love going and looking at sunsets on holidays. There's something about the sun at night that draws people out of everywhere to look at the sunset. I don't know. It causes you to reflect. I don't know. It doesn't matter where I go. People flock to the beach or to a point to be able to see when the sun comes and it's an incredible sunset. So now let's look at the text again. The heavens declare the glory of God. So what does the word glory mean? Glory is the Hebrew word for weightiness or heaviness. So weight or heaviness. So how does that work? So really the idea is that God's reputation, the weight of his reputation is his his importance, his splendor, his distinction, his honor. And see, that is what the skies are proclaiming. That God is glorious because we realize that he is the one that created all of these. Incredible. God is glorious. So let's look back at the text again. It goes on to say in verses 4 to 6, that in the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, 
like a champion rising to run his course. It rises from one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. So three vivid images are given of the sun. The first one is that God pitched a tent. You may have already guessed that I like camping. <laughs> and the idea of like throwing a tent over the, over the sun just, is just an image that God is so big that it just, he just puts his tent over it. <laughs> and he is so glorious. Or the next one's a little bit different image. He says, like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. This is a vivid image of the bridegroom coming after his wedding night with a big smile on his face. You see, because he's just glowing from the experience that he's just had. Or three, uh, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. And think back to the Olympics. Anyone watch the Winter Olympics this year? Well, maybe not so much, but uh, in the Winter Olympics, I love watching someone win. And the gold medal winner standing on the podium with a massive smile on her face. Those are amazing, amazing experiences. And the sun is like that. It shines in all its brilliance. So verse 6 says, the sun makes its circuit from the, from the hev- uh, in the heavens, provides warmth for all of mankind. We could not do without the sun. Interesting, we will miss the importance of this if we don't understand what it was like in the mind of a Hebrew at that time. Because the mind of the Hebrew of that time, the sun was the biggest and most sensational object that they could look at. They can't even look at it. You would go blind if you looked at the sun. And as a result... The, the na- ancient Near East people worshipped it as God itself. So these verses stand in contrast to the pagan beliefs of the time, where the same terminology is used in that litur- of their literature to saying God is not the sun. Our God created the sun. It's so much and more. So incredible. I think of the, the verse, Romans 1, verse 20. If you've never memorized it, it's worth memorizing. It says, for since the creation of the world, since the world began, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that men are, that people are without excuse. I'll give you my own, you can look at it later, I'll give you my own quick version of that. In other words, when we stand before God at the judgment and say, I didn't know that you existed, he's going to say, what? I was shouting at you through creation the entire time. And that's what Romans 1 verse 20 says. So what should our response be? Well, if you're like me, it's pretty awe-inspiring, and I'm pretty humbled of who who am I in comparison. And I think that's an important posture to have as we, we approach and understand who God is. But we will see in this psalm that God did not stop his revelation in simply the creation. He went on, and let's read verses 7 through 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm. All of them are righteous. So in this section, we have either the word law or a synonym for the law repeated six times. When something in in poetry is repeated six times, we should probably pay attention. So that's what the poet is trying to do here, trying to emphasize. uh, So let's just look really quickly at each one of those particular ones, and I'll make some comments. First, we see that the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul in verse 7. The idea of perfect, that, that 
it refreshes the soul. The meaning behind refresh, when you think about it, when you're refreshed, you go from feeling worn out to feeling full of energy. It's the same word in Hebrew that they use for repent. Well, you think about repent. When you repent, you're going in one direction and you realize it's wrong. You turn and go back to the other direction, back to the way things should be. So when we are refreshed by God's word, we, ref- we experience a deep peace, a shalom of knowing that we- things are right in our relationship with him. Then five synonyms are used, as I've mentioned. The first synonym is found in verse 7, where it says, The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. You see, you can count on God's word. It's trustworthy. You can put your trust in it. Wisdom is gained. We have everything we need to know how to live our lives. The second synonym is found in verse 8. It says, The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. You want true joy and satisfaction in life? It is found in God's living word. It is worth looking at and experiencing that joy and satisfaction. The third synonym is found in verse 8. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. And I think of the psalm, I think of the idea of radiance, of light. I'm reminded of the verse in, one, in Psalm 119, verse 105. Now, that's a a lot, of, a lot of hundreds, but Psalm 119 is very similar to the section where the entire psalm, the longest book in the Bible, is, uh, the longest chapter in the Bible, is, is uh, totally geared to the word of God. And what does that verse say? It says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. As I've already been saying, I like going into the wilderness. And if I go on a moonless night and walking through the wilderness and just sort of walk, I am doomed for failure. I will walk into a tree. I will trip on roots. I'll probably fall off a cliff. But no, if I bring a headlamp or, or a flashlight and I flash it around, I can see, whoa, no, the path's not over there. It's over here. And so I can make my feet go where the path. I can avoid those pitfalls in life. And the word of God is like that. It helps us to be able to see where to go and avoid where to miss. We need that in our lives. And then the, the fourth synonym is found in verse 9, which is a little bit different. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning, so, sorry, is endu- sorry, is pure, enduring forever. We don't think of the word fear as a synonym for the law. But when you think about it, David is using it this, in this sense. The idea of fear being a synonym for the law is that the law's purpose, the purpose of the law, is to cause us to realize that we, are, that we need to fear God. In other words, when we, when we read it, we should give him that reverence, that fear, that respect that he deserves. So then, when we go on to verse 10, sorry, verse 9, we see our last and fifth synonym. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. So this breaks the pattern that we've seen in the, la- in the previous five. Because you can even, if you read it in English and just reading it, it's actually you sort of trip over it because it sounds different. Actually, the scholars say this is done on purpose as sort of a poetic climax to bring it all to, the, uh, to a conclusion. You see, the final claim is that the decrees of the Lord are righteous connects back to the image of the sun. And the image of the sun is an image of judgment. In the face of judgments, God's word provides us with perfect refuge in his righteousness. Amazing. Verse 10 concludes this section by talking about the law itself and describing them. Two images are used to describe them. 
to compare God's law. Let's read them. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. You can hear the parallelism there. That's why they repeated the game. See, gold in the ancient Near East was the most valuable commodity. And honey, especially honey directly from the honeycomb, was the sweetest substance. So when we think about this, do we view the word of God as the most valuable thing that we have and the sweetest thing that we are able to engage with? Um, I'm reminded of George Budd, who was a speaker here often, uh, and uh, I really appreciated his ministry. And George used to encourage us to do something, and I've been doing it in my life for quite some time now, uh, just simply asking a question. When I, when I wake up in the morning, I say, Lord, what are you telling me today? Like, what do you want me to know today? And, just, it, and I'm listening to try to understand what he's saying. It's a great habit, and I thank George for it. So are we listening to the... And on the next section, as we learn, is what is David's response? So let's see his David's response, because it's interesting. So verse 11 says, By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Well, see, this is definitely a contrast to what's just happened because things change. The focus changes from God to David and the, the style changes to that of conversational prayer. Can you hear David speaking? He's talking to God. He's having a conversation with God about the things he's just experienced. He just reminded himself of, of God revealing himself through creation in the skies and he reminded himself about through scripture Well, the thing is, is that as he was reminded about those things, he realized what he was like because he saw in Scripture that he didn't necessarily measure up. And when he didn't measure up, uh, we see that it says, by by them, your servant is warned. We know we we can see how we don't measure up. And in keeping them, there is great reward. The opposite, the opposite idea that if we, if we stick to what, what Scripture says, we will experience reward. I'm reminded of Psalm 1, verse, verse 3, which uses an illustration of a tree planted by streams of water. And, and that tree is described as yielding its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. See, this should motivate us. Scripture talks a lot about reward. If you ever want to study that, it's an interesting topic in itself. Then the next two verses offer parallelism again and are a contrast as David thinks further about his sin in his life. He says, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. See, the Lord will reveal our true hearts when we approach him in Scripture. He'll point out things and he's so gracious. He'll nudge me and say, Bruce Lee, what about that? Uh, yeah, okay, Lord. <laughs> and, and, and if we're listening to him, if we're having that conversation with him and trying to understand, unfortunately, sometimes I'm not listening, and I know that that is the issue that we need to work on. But David goes on in verse 13 to say, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me, then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression." So not only, though, are there sins that are hidden, he didn't even realize they were there, but there are sins in David's life that he realizes that are absolutely, positively deliberate and in God's face. 
God will forgive those sins too. And if you've ever had that in your life, if you've ever let God down and, and actually done it on purpose, knowing it, God will forgive you. We know that we can have a forgiveness. And David's even recognizing this as he thought about it. So what should our response be? <laughs> Thankfulness. Thank you, Lord, that you would forgive us, that you refresh us and you bring us back and restore us. Verse 14 is the conclusion of the psalm. And it's sort of a prayer. He says, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, in the closing prayer, David, as a poet, recalls the entire psalm and reminds himself of the theme of speech, the theme that God is speaking. And he begins to speak, and he realizes he's doing it carefully because he realizes that he might not speak well. So he says, may these, Lord, uh, I need to speak well. I need to speak correctly. And the interesting thing, when it talks about meditation of a heart, it's different than meditation that we think of in our, when, when I think of meditation, I think of you know, going off into the, by myself and thinking uh, but, uh, quietly. But when the Hebrew spoke about the meditation, it was meant often to be out loud, audible, and in this particular case, sung in community. And that's why singing in community is a great thing to do. And David ends the psalm similar to how he started it, talking about creation. And he thinks about God as another metaphor. He uses the, word, the metaphor of a rock. He says, he says, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So a rock is something that's real, read, uh, real that's reliable, that's tangible, that you can see it, that you can count on it. And the Redeemer is the idea that he brings us back. He constantly brings us back when we mess up. He wants us to come back into relationship. So what should our response be? Our response needs to be to confess. Confess simply means to acknowledge, to agree with God that you've done wrong. And what happens is when, when, when that's revealed in Scripture, we're able to see that. And God is open. He is there waiting to receive us back. Just like a father, or in this case, mother on a Mother's Day, is waiting when the son or the child messes up that they want to bring them back and give them a big hug and forgive. We need to take more time to reflect on this. And may our words also reflect uh, the, the, the prayer of David. Just before we finish, though, I'd like to say, I'd like to think, and I've just been thinking about this, that if, if this psalm was written after Jesus, what would happen? I have a funny feeling that if David was in the time after Christ, that he maybe would have included another stanza. And that stanza would have probably be about Jesus. Think about the expressions that are used to describe Jesus. In John chapter 1, the very first verse, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word is Jesus. He was there with God in the beginning. What is a Word? Engage in, think about this. A Word is a message. So, so, the, so Jesus is described as a message. He was God's message to us. And we know that uh, a few verses later in verse 14, it says, it says that the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. And incidentally, it says after that, and we beheld his glory, which is, ties back to glory, neat, neat to see. But in other words, Jesus became a human being to show us how to live, to show us the way in which we should understand and live life. 
gave a, was a great example, but didn't leave it there. Also came to give his life on our behalf so that we would be brought back in relationship with him. Wow, this idea of relation is amazing. So now, as we come to the end of our message, I'm going to do something a little different. We're going to try and see if this works. Uh, we're going to show this, this uh, YouTube video called, again, if you want to Google it, it's called Megapixels of Andromeda. And I'm going to pray this prayer. I'm going to pray the psalm. And as I pray the psalm, I'm just going to talk conversationally to God about it. And I would encourage you, you know, lots of times we pray with our eyes closed, which is good for concentration. I'd like to encourage you not to pray with your eyes closed. Look at the picture. See the incredible uh, majesty of God in creation. So let's pray together. Lord, as we come into your presence, we're reminded from this text that the skies proclaim your glory. Oh, Lord, how many times I have to confess that I've hardly given it a glance. And it's the same thing with the rest of your creation. It's easy just to ignore it and think about my own problems. But, Lord, help us to realize that you are speaking to us. You are reminding us of the reality that you live and you exist. You do this day after day, night after night. Help us to listen, Lord. Help us when we see the sun to be reminded that you just threw a tent over it. And that you are amazing. And your reality is seen, Father, in your creation. But I thank you that you didn't leave us with just the creation. That you expressed to us more specifically about how you want us to live. You gave us your, your law. It refreshes us, Lord. It's worthy to be trusted. It makes us wise. It gives us joy. It gives us light. So that we know where to live and how to live. It endures forever, and all of your law is righteous. Oh, Lord, it's the most precious thing that we have, but I, we have to confess, Lord, that oftentimes we don't treat it very, very much like it's precious and sweet to us. So help me, Lord, to see the sweetness of your word, to engage with it. And, Father, in it we know that we are warned. Help me to see those warnings, Lord, so that I will follow and experience great reward. And, Father, that... As you reveal yourself to us, we see that we have our own errors and and hidden faults and even willful sins. And Lord, I thank you that when we come to you and confess that you forgive us. Thank you, Lord. May these words of our mouths and this meditation of our heart be pleasing to you. Lord, our rock and our redeemer.